So, as I said, even if we even if we have only a couple people here, we're we're going to get going, and people will, I'm sure, trickle in as as time goes on, as people are wont to do. Um, so we're talking about misconceptions that we have about scripture, and today we want to move to a, a to a new one. Last time we just talked about uh, different cultural depictions that we've had. Now we're going to talk about beloved biblical wisdom, stuff that people know is in the Bible and isn't in the Bible necessarily, right? Uh, things that, that people are, are, are the quote from Scripture. They know it's in Scripture. It's not in Scripture. So, true or false, the Bible teaches us wise men talk because they have something to say. Fools, because they have to say something. <laughs> well, every answer so far that you test you've given us has been false. So I have to go with false. And that is good college test-taking etiquette. <laughs> like, all right, forget what I think the answer is. This is patterns of how the, how the prof thinks. Yes, this is false. It's actually Plato. But part of that you should say, well, it's, it's awful clever. It's, it's almost cutesy. And there's very few things in Scripture that that God is saying, I, I'm going to be, there's some, but there's very few things where God says, I'm going to be, I'm going to be really clever and cutesy in how I put this together. But this is actually one of my favorite Plato quotes. This idea of saying, just because somebody's talking doesn't necessarily mean they're wise, and doesn't necessarily mean they're foolish. Wise men talk because they have something to say. They're, they want to share wisdom. Fools also will talk because they have to say something because nobody's listening to them right now, and so they have to say something and keep going. But that one's too easy. I don't want to, don't gauge too much on that. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that isn't in the Bible. There's a lot of stuff that people are forever citing. They know it's there. They've read it there. They know that it's there. And it's not actually there. So, what we want to do today is take a quiz. An ongoing quiz with a couple different questions. How many of these beloved bits of biblical wisdom are actually biblical? Okay? I think, that's, I think that's good. I think it's good to talk about some of this stuff. How many of the stuff that people love in the Bible is actually in the Bible? Ready? Let's have some fun with this. Alright. Yes or no? Is this biblical or not? To everything there is a season. Is it yes? Or do you think it's yes? Or do you know it's yes? There's a it's not worded quite right. It's, it's Ecclesiastes 3. Okay, it's from Ecclesiastes 3, exactly. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn. A time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to, be, to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What's interesting to me is I can think of all sorts of different times in Scripture where each of these has come up. Where God has specifically said, speak to people. And God has specifically said, oh, don't say anything to people. A time specifically where we're told to mend things and bring things together. And a time specifically where God says, I'm tearing this apart. Even I'm tearing that, that skirt apart, that robe apart, what have you. So, time for everything under heaven, right? So, to everything there is a season. Not exactly phrased that way, though some specific translations do say it that way. So, what does that mean, though? Okay, we're just quoting did he from Ecclesiastes. What's the point of that? What does it mean? What it says. <laughs> oh, then, okay, good. Then we all know. Great. I know somebody who says, okay, what that means is everything that you want to do is acceptable if it's the right time. And we all say, yep. We agree, right? I asked you what it meant. I asked you what it meant. And all of you are like, it's pretty clear, isn't it? So we're all in agreement. Everybody's in agreement as to what that means. Yes. So let me ask. Is this what it means? Everything you want to do is acceptable if it's the right time. If somebody said that, how would you respond? Is that what that section is saying? If it's 
right time by God's standard as opposed to what we think. Okay, so if you pray it is the right time by God's standard to have an affair, it's okay. Pardon me? Okay, because uh, you're right. Affairs are sin issues. If what? If, if it's if it's the right time by God's standards, what? How would you how would you operationalize that for people? I mean, wouldn't everybody already say if God is leading you to do something, then it's the right time to do it, and you should do it? Why did Solomon even include that in Ecclesiastes? This time for the divine portion. This time. I said, Lord, if this isn't time, tell me. And he said, nothing. So it's the time. It's not a sin issue, so sure. How would you describe this section? What's it saying? What's the point? You were going to say something, I think. Did you? No. No? Okay. Nothing. Seriously, nobody? Nobody else wants to? Um, when they're talking about, it's talking about like God is working his um, underpinning for things, not necessarily the way we would interpret the things that we want to do, but what God Okay, I agree. I think that's part of it. Solomon structured this a specific way for specific reasons. And I'm not, I'm not just looking for one answer. I'm just like, he gave an extended discussion. He gave a ton of different things, and he did them in couplets. Why? Because I agree. I agree with what you're saying. This is that this is all in God's timing and his sovereignty, yes. But why specifically an extended discussion of multiple different things? He didn't just say one or two things. Lots of them. And he did them in, in couplets of mutually exclusive things. What's the point of that? Not a one-size-fits-all. Hmm. Are there times where God might say X? This is a time for X. Yes. Are there times where God might say, whatever you do, not X? Yes. Is it possible that God might look at Randy and go, Randy, X. Paul, whatever you do, not X. And be the same God with the same will and same vision? Yes. Because in his sovereignty, he understands that there are different situations, there are different contexts, that even that is part of his sovereignty. And definitely what you guys are supposed to do within that, there's differences. So, yeah. And to sit there and say, well, obviously God likes us to do this. God wants peace. Yes? God wants healing. You agree? In general, God likes peace. In general, God likes to heal. So God never wants not peace. God never wants not healing, right? So it's important that we don't just read that and say, what a nice little poem. It's important that we don't just read that and say, anything I want to do is good, because God says there's a time for that. No. That's not the point that the Bible is getting at there. There's multiple different points, but all the ones that we're talking about here are important to stop and think about. 1959. Folk singer Pete Seeger wrote a popular song called To Turn, Turn, Turn. That then was made into a hit by the birds, because that's the version that everybody remembers. Um, six years old by the time, but still, you know, it's, 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 that's what everybody knows. And it was supposed to be an anti-war song. The whole point of it is that going into the, into the Cold War and then ultimately why the, the birds brought it back into the, into the Vietnam War, that's not what we want to do. So they changed the text a little bit. Seeger dropped two couplets. Which is interesting, because he kept all the other ones. So why would he, under those auspices, drop the couplet, there's a time to search and a time to give up? Why would he, in that context, drop the couplet, there's a time to be silent and a time to speak? Because there isn't a time to be silent, is there? We need to speak. There isn't a time to give up. We need to keep, we need to keep searching. Those are the only two he dropped. Should be telling. When you notice that somebody drops one part or two parts of a complex thing, you go, why? Was it just you didn't have time in the song? No. Then he changed the final couplet. And he said this before, he'd done the whole a time for a war and a time for peace earlier, but he ends by saying, there's a time for peace, I swear it's not too late. That's the final bit of that, of that song. Why? Because he's 
majority of the song is you know, Iron Age lyrics from the Bible. I don't want to slam them too hard for this, because yay, right? They're sitting there, there, are, there are generations of people that can sing a chunk of Ecclesiastes because of Bob Seger's song. Or Bob Seger. Pete Seger, different. Pete Seger's song. Bob Seger. Oh, he did that too. No. Pete Seger's song. And I respect that. I think that's that's splendiferous. And yet, yeah, he tweaked it. Suggesting that maybe there isn't really a time for war. At the very least, this isn't that time, so we need to make sure that we're focused on peace. Not a horrible thing, but it is interesting when you start tweaking scripture. So there are people who say, yes, I can sing Ecclesiastes. There's a time for peace, and I swear it's not too late. And you go, that's not Ecclesiastes. That's not it. But all that suggests that oftentimes we'll use Bible verses, especially poetical Bible verses, to mean pretty much whatever we want them to mean, right? You take them out, and you can go, and by this I mean my anti-war rhetoric. Great. Stand against war. That's fine. Whatever you want to do. But I'm a little uncomfortable with tweaking something that's a little bit bigger capital T truth than what you're trying to express. Alright, let's do another one. Yes or no? Is this biblical? This too shall pass. We have one we have one no and several squinty eyes. Okay, no, this is not in scripture. Even though in 1993 at this press conference where he's leaving as coach of the Bears, Mike Singletary repeatedly referred to the scriptural concept of this too shall pass. I love me, my Mike Ditka, but no. <laughs> you can't say yet. As scripture says, uh, all things shall pass. And then multiple times during the speech, kept going, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Um, not in the Bible. Not the two. We can get close. There's sections in like Matthew 24, 35 where Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. First John, the world and this desires will pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. There's, there's stuff-ish about that in scripture. But this quote, not in the Bible, especially not the way it's being used. But there is an historical precedent for it being used that way, that in all things, good things and bad things, pass away. 1859, Abraham Lincoln is giving a speech in Milwaukee, and he uses as an anecdote, he says, it said an eastern monarch once charged his wise men to invent him a sentence to be ever in view, and which should be true and appropriate in all times and situations. They presented him with the words, and this too shall pass away. Supposedly in Persia, that was a thing. that The king had somebody whose whole job it was. When he won a victory, or when he lost a victory, when something horrible and tragic happened, or when he's, being, he's basking in the adulation of the crowds, somebody to come up and say, and this too shall pass. That's at least legend. But it kind of puts things into perspective, this idea that during turbulent times, it's really nice to remember that good things and bad things, none of those are forever. you agree? Is that healthy? That biblical concept? Good things and bad things pass away at some point? In this world, situations you find yourself in are temporary. Yes. Hey, Ditka's quoting this as scripture. Is is that good or bad? I'll say yes. But is what? that true? What he said? Nobody knows. So there's legends about that, but nobody knows. But I mean, prior to his having said it, there were there's allusions oh, to that and other things. Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. He did. Yeah. He didn't just come up with it in 1859. But that was that was kind of what put brought it to popular um, familiarity with people. But no, there were allusions and other things too. But he's the one that gave us this particular phraseology. This too shall pass. Uh, you know, for some circumstances it's probably good, but other circumstances it's, oh, this is going to pass. I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to sit back and wait. So it's probably not good. But other things, it may be very appropriate. Yeah, it, it may actually be quite true that every 
earthly circumstance you find yourself in at some point will come to a close, including that you're on earth breathing air. You know, at some point, all of this comes to a close. How you respond to this may or may not necessarily be healthy. It is not automatically healthy to say, oh, this will be over soon. It's like, no, I, there are some things that need to be dealt with one way or the other, and both in good things and in hard things. There, there are some hard things you go, you can't just say, oh, eventually I'll stop having to tread water. Yeah, you'll drown. It'll keep treading. You know, there's some of that. Pardon me? Yeah, which makes, it which makes it accurate, but not the way to handle it. Um, uh, I don't know. What? Uh, uh, where you say um, so, uh, something absolutely wonderful is going on, and you, and you find yourself going, and then tomorrow will be back to normal. Enjoy this. Enjoy this good thing for what it is, as a gift from God. Um, well, I've got uh, I've got troubles in my marriage, but you know, eventually she'll die. It's like, well, really not the way to look at that. Deal with what you're dealing with. Anywhere that you are right now, be there. I, I was talking to somebody just the other day about this. They're like, I'm kind of in limbo with some things, and I'm like, okay. But you're not in limbo. You are, right now, in the physical and relational circumstances that you're in. Be there. Actually be there and do stuff there. Otherwise, you're always in limbo. Because they're right. Even your life will eventually pass away. I'm just sojourning here, right? Eventually, I'll be dead. You'll have a different pastor. I mean, it might be five years from now. It might be 30 years from now. So I'm kind of in limbo here. I'm kind of a lame duck. No, as long as I'm here, and as long as I'm sucking breath, I'm going to work on the things that God has placed in my life. Otherwise, I'm ignoring God's leading. Let's do another one. A fool and his money are soon parted. By the way, there's a lot of things, before before you automatically say yes or no, there's a lot of things in scripture, like, by the skin of his teeth, or, uh, pardon me? Handwriting on the wall, or bite the dust. There are a lot of phrases that we do in English that come straight out of scripture. So it is interesting to, to, to see some of these things. But So I don't want you to assume automatically, I'm familiar with that, therefore it can't be from Scripture, or I'm familiar with that, it must be from Scripture. So, a fool and his money are soon parted. Scriptural or not? Yes. I think yes. Uh, I just have to keep disagreeing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, Eric and Randy are at odds today, all things. No! It is not in Scripture. Um, it's actually from 1557. A, guy named, a poet named Thomas Tusser in his book, 100th Good Points of Husbandry, using far too many E's. So, Tusser's the same guy, we get the phrases, things like, April showers bring May flowers, and a rolling stone gathers no moss. Those are all Tusser. So, uh, if that comes up later in this, if I say a rolling stone gathers no moss, you go, no, Thomas Tusser, ha ha, ha ha. So, no, he's the guy that said, a fool and his money are soon parted, not scripture. Isn't Tusser a... Tusser. Oh, I say this is a Tusser British thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sir. Now, the last one, the Rolling Stone Gathers No Moss, technically he got from Erasmus from about 50 years earlier and pirated it, stole it, put it into English from Latin, but still giving that to Tusser as the guy who brought it into English, at least. Okay, what does the Bible warn about fools and their resources? Somebody read me 20, uh, Proverbs 21.20, please. <laughs> In the house of the wise there are stores of choice of good and oil, but a foolish man devours all cats. Okay. So what is that verse saying in Proverbs? How would you summarize that? <coughs> wise person saves up stuff. and the fool Yeah. 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 Well, wise man plans ahead, fool doesn't. Wise man saves the fool. Not just money, but all their resources. They just burn through their stuff going, I'm sure everything will be fine. 
Um, what does the Bible say about resources stored up here on earth in general? In verses like Proverbs 23, 4 through 5, somebody read that. Matthew 6, 19 through 20, somebody else read that, please. 23, 4 through 5. Wear yourself out to give great wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like a And Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Pardon me? Now you're stuck on song lyrics, aren't you? <laughs> Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where hang moth and rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, but where your treasure is, there your heart will be Okay. <laughs> so, this 1557 quote from Tusser. It's more or less just, it's more or less biblical, right? So it is still biblical. Yes? No? Yeah, it kind of depends on what you mean by the word biblical. If by biblical you mean it's in line with scripture, yeah. If by biblical you mean it's from the Bible, no. What do people mean when they say biblical? Yeah, I, the sad thing is, is it's, it's answering that question is a two-part one. Number one, whatever they want to mean. And number two, either or both at any given time. It's amazing, and we've talked about this before when we talked about some theological things, it's amazing how many people say anybody who disagrees with Calvinism is an Arminian. Arminians believe this. So is an Arminian somebody who holds these views, or is an Arminian somebody who disagrees with these views? Because those are not necessarily the same thing. And yet, we tend to use those synonymously. It's like, well, I'm not a five-point Calvinist. So, you think you can lose your salvation at the drop of a hat? No. <laughs> Just because I disagree with this doesn't mean I agree with all the things that everybody over here agrees with. It's, there's always a danger in giving two separate, simultaneous definitions for something. And then holding on to both of those and jumping to whichever one you feel like doing in a given moment. And nobody does it. Very few people do that consciously. It's just more like I haven't, I haven't really nailed some of that down. So when they say biblical, are they saying, you know, it's in line with scripture? Or are they saying it's scripture? The problem is, the biggest problem is sometimes, yes. In any given moment we go, it's in line with scripture, so I'm sure that's in the Bible. Or it's not in the Bible, it's in line with scripture, so it's perfectly fine to cite it as if it were scriptural gospel truth. You want to cite it as a clever little aphorism? Knock yourself out. You want to make an argument that it is in line with Scripture? Great. Is there a danger in people saying, as the Bible says, a fool and his money are soon parted? What's the danger? Dangerous in that. The Bible doesn't say that. You're misrepresenting. You're giving more authority to something that's due. What happens when somebody looks that up and goes, no, it doesn't. What does that do to them? Just trust anything you might say. Yep. Interesting. By the way, I love this graphic. I just, just, if you can't see it, it says test your stupidity. There's a slot here, and it says insert $100. <laughs> and the guy's looking at it going, hmm. I love that. As soon as I saw that, I'm like, I gotta use that somewhere. It's actually part of why I chose this particular one. <laughs> okay. Yes or no? All things work together for good. Continue. That's not what I asked. Yes or no? Is that is that in the Bible? Is that biblical? It's not the complete sentence. So yes. In this case it depends again on what you mean by biblical. If you mean are those words in the Bible? Yes. Does the Bible is that in line with biblical principles? No. Okay, so I have to either answer yes-ish or no-ish, right? I can't just say yes or no here. In this case, and you could quibble, I'm going to say no-ish. And the reason I say no-ish is 
Yes, those words are absolutely in Romans 8.28. Yes, those words are in the Bible. But that concept is so not. Taking them out of their context, the phrase crucially changes what the Bible is getting at. So, yes-ish, those words are biblical. No-ish, because the concept is not. Right? So, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called, according to his purpose, said King James. Or if you want to be a little bit more literal to what the Bible is actually saying, go to the NAS. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The original, it's, God is doing this. So, it's like not for good. Where's just the one quote and say, I mean the... Misrepresented, however, would be like it's suggestive of for you, but not necessarily for the person. Yeah. Was Job, Book of Job, good for Job, the guy of Job? Not arguably a lot of. I, depends on how you want to read the end. We'll go, yes, yes, all of his children were slaughtered, but he got better ones. He was like, ah. Hmm. I'm not sure that Job is going to look back at that and go, <laughs> came out in the wash. Everything's fine. No. So was Job, the book of Job, a lot of fun for the guy of Job? No. Was the book of Job ending up being good for us? Way good. Pardon me? I did. But, uh, so you sit there and you just go, what God uses for good may not necessarily be the best thing for, at least perceivably so, for Michael. But what Michael goes through may end up being the best thing for Cliff. By the way, something that God lets Cliff goes through might just really tear Cliff to shreds. But Sarah learned a lot from that and grew as a Christian as a result, which made her a better mom, which ministers to Michael and some of the things that he's dealing with as a mom. I guess I lost myself in my analogy. The point is, <laughs> my point is that you, it may, a given instance may not be something that you say, well, God will work this for the good of me. Not what that verse is saying. There might be verses that you could point to for that. Not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying, in all things, what? Well, first off, God is working for, he's going to use it for good. I'm sorry for you, but good. Okay, what else do you see different from in, in the full quote rather than the oversimplification? Any other differences? God is the Yeah, God's the active force. It's not just, well... Read Candide sometimes. This is the best of all possible world. Pan gloss. You know, no, actually, it's not necessarily, if what you mean is everything's as good as it can be and everything's just going to work out okay. But depending on how you're defining okay, no, it isn't. It could be really bad. It's not just that, well, you know, everything will it'll be just fine. No, God is the active force doing this. God is actively working to make things constructive on an ultimate cosmic scale. I think that's an important distinction, rather than just this. What else? Anything else that you see in the in the full version of this verse than in that? It says that they're called according to his purpose, and you have to wonder, well, what purpose is that? And then read the next verse. Well, yeah, okay, what is the next verse? Um, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, so in that case, in this specific instance, what could we be talking about in terms of his purpose? How might this be worked for good according to his purpose? His purpose being? Making it like Christ. Help me out here. Anybody that knows anything about sculpture, you've got a chunk of granite. How do you make it not a chunk of granite, but you make it look like David? You hit it with something sharp and heavy until it splinters and falls apart and if it had nerve endings, says, ouch. And then it becomes David. Right? To his credit, what Michelangelo said, I, I, I'm just pulling David out of the block. You know, he's, he was in there the whole time. I just was getting him out of there. I'm just removing all the other stuff. But the idea is, there are things that God might allow into your life that you might say, well, it didn't feel very good. Is it still good? If even if it chips, even if it hurts, 
It helps you to conform more and more to his likeness, more and more to the person he is sculpting you to be. Is it good? Yeah. And it, it, sometimes it takes discernment to figure out, what am I going through because I'm making mistakes, and what am I going through because, no, God is helping me not to make so many mistakes. I don't know. It, that's just one continuum to look at. But to stop and say, no, there's a purpose here, and that purpose may be to help you. Can, or, for that matter, I'll go back to the original one. Michael may be going through things so that Cliff ultimately conforms more to God's purposes and to more the shape that God sculpted him, which is helping Sarah be sculpted more and more into God's likeness, which is helping Michael. So it might not even necessarily be something that immediately Michael goes, well, I see what God is trying to show me. Yay, when that happens. But sometimes, no, you're not going to see. I have very little doubt. Actually, I'm sure that you're going to be doing more important things when you get to heaven. And going, oh, I get this. Well, and that's what happened on Thursday. But I have very little doubt that at least on some level, when we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of things that we go, oh, so that wasn't even for me. That was good. Okay. Anything else? There's at least one other element to this that nobody's brought up. Well, there is that. Yep. But specifically, we talked about God. God causing. Yes, we are. Things to work together for good. We talked about that. According to his purpose, we talked about that. There's a middle part. Yeah. If we are talking about things working together for the good of people, which people? All people? Again, I'm not saying that God doesn't work for good for non-Christians, but this verse isn't talking about that. This verse is specifically talking about those who are called, or even the called, depending on how you want to uh, translate that, according to his purpose. This is talking about Christians. When we say all things work together for good, Period. It's like, it's like peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Period. Because that fits better on a Christmas card. But it's like, well, there's actual context to both those verses that are saying, this is specifically for the people of God. Again, I'm not saying that God doesn't do good things for other people. This is not what those verses are saying. And we remove that crucial element here when we just want to make people feel better. So that's why I have to say no-ish. Yes, the words are in the Bible, but that concept is dangerous. Because what it tells everybody is, everything's going to be okay. It's like, um, not necessarily. You might burn in hell. Not okay. I'm sure everything will be okay. No, you're going to end up in a divorce if you're not paying attention. Oh. I'm sure it'll work out okay. No, you really need to go to the doctor, otherwise that leg's just going to fall right off. It's not automatically just going to be okay. Does, does the Bible teach that everything will ultimately work out for our own good? to be the way I think in terms of going, well, how do you, what do you mean by that question? How do you define ultimately, as Randy said, and what do you define our own good? It's like, if by ultimately you mean, like, cosmologically, ultimately, a million years from now, will the things in our life have turned out for our own good, or that sort of thing, versus ultimately, end of the day today, will things have, or for our own good, you mean, so that I'm more comfortable, so that things happen the way I was hoping that they would happen, or for our own good, i.e., we were created for the purpose of glorifying God, and this will help us to do that. You know, we want to be close to God, and this can help us to conform more and more to his likeness, that sort of thing. Does the Bible teach that everything in life, ultimately, the good things, the hard things, can be used by God, will be used by God to try to sculpt us more and more into what he sculpted us to be? Yeah. Does the Bible teach everything in life 
ultimately is going to turn out okay. By okay, I mean the way that you hope if you have enough faith. No. <laughs> so no. So it's important to stop and think about this. And, and I know in, in so many ways I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. People are like, oh, I know all this. But, but then we, people quote this. I mean, I put a graphic up there to begin this by, that, that was from a, a, a seminar led by somebody from Shepherd's Call. Is that a Christian something? Remember Shepherd's Call? Eric has. Yeah, Christian groups, Christian ministries will teach all things work together for good. You can, if you put a period there, you've done a disservice. You're misteaching scripture. Okay. Yes or no? Is this in the Bible? It is better to cast your seed in the belly of a whore than to spill it out on the ground. That's so odd. It has to be yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Eric, what do you say? And he said yes. Then no. Then you answer. Pardon me? It's like Mr. Kellogg. Mr. Kellogg? The Kellogg cereal person, he had a lot to say about this. Oh, I was going to say, that's the worst commercial I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Kellogg cereal, because it's better to cap <laughs> Was it Judah that got in trouble for... Oh, man. Like, no, it was Judah. Actually, this is referring to Onan and Judah. Yeah. But it is not from the Bible. Okay. Yep. Okay. This is a very famous, and you'll find this all over, all over the internet. There's people going, where is that in the Bible? This is a very famous phrase. Very cynical, though. It came out of a Catholic reading of Genesis 38. Specifically, the story of Onan, who spilled his seed on the ground when he was having sex with Tamar, right? I, I wish I could make the, I wish I could close, I guess I could close that one. It doesn't help that much. This is, a painting of Onan and Tamar. Yeah, if you want to turn off the light for a second. Just so that you can see this nifty, yeah, see, nifty painting. I'm afraid of leaving the lights off that you guys are going to nod off. But, you know, try it. <laughs> yes. Um, so, within Catholicism, Onanism, actual name for this, Onanism is the sin of wasting precious sperm through masturbation or coitus interruptus, where you spill your seed rather than fill the womb, which is why most forms of contraception are considered to be sin in Catholicism, because it's a sin, right? Onanism is bad. Somebody read Genesis 38, 6 through 10. And Judah took a wife for her, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Of her, Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise her up and marry to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass, when he went into his brother's wife, that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. That is a very interesting translation for that. He married her and emitted. Okay. Um, but yeah. Uh, back in the background, if you remember from Deuteronomy 25, if, if, if your brother passes away before he produces an heir, you're supposed to sleep with his widow to produce an heir for your brother. And, and, and as weird as that seems to us today, we're like, no! The idea is, is that there's still the, the bloodline. I mean, not just there's an heir, but there's a literal blood heir from this family. That your brother's side of the family still gets that inheritance that God promised, and that that child that comes is still part of that bloodline of that family unit. So it's not that you sit there and you go, I'm going to marry this woman. It's actually, no, no. She's still married to my brother. I'm going to sleep with her, produce an heir. But she's still my brother's widow. Because the child that she has is not my child. It's my brother's child. Remember this from Ruth? The whole Goel, kinsman, redeemer thing? Where, where they have a child, they go, this isn't our child, this is now Naomi's child. Thing. This is it's the way this works. Same sort of thing. So, so do other passages most passages don't say marriage. Most translations don't say marriage. Yeah. So what was Onan's sin here? Is it really that he spilled semen? Or is it that he had absolutely no problem with repeatedly sleeping with his brother's attractive widow, but pulled out and made sure that he spilled his seed on the ground rather than produce an heir that would then take some of his inheritance away from him? 
He's like, I don't want to have an heir that divvies up my inheritance. But yes, I will repeatedly sleep with Tamar, having nothing to do with Deuteronomy as to why I'm doing it, right? Because the whole point of Deuteronomy was you sleep with her, produce an heir. We're told he repeatedly slept with her. Whenever he came and, and had sex with her, this is what he did. Do you see why that might be considered a sin? I'm using Deuteronomy to sleep. And why do I say attractive widow? We don't know that for certain, but what idea do we get as to why she might be an attractive person? Just Judah later on as a prostitute. Yeah. So I mean, the, the impression that we're given is that she's at least somewhat attractive. At the very least, though, Onan thought it was attractive to sleep with her. Uh, you know, at the, at the very least, he liked that idea. So this is all kinds of wrong. Because he's not sleeping with his wife, he's sleeping with his brother's wife. This makes it actually tantamount to adultery. This is not cool, which is why God took his life. So the horror part, yeah? Two questions. First of all, you said, according to the law in Deuteronomy, but obviously this happens a lot earlier the law, so what we're saying is Deuteronomy is kind of what the custom was already. Yeah, there are already common practices. Actually, we get this from various Middle Eastern uh, cultures and things. And a lot of the law, well, I mean, we're even told in Scripture some things that, that they knew beforehand that God codified later in the law. So, I mean, a lot of the things that they get in Deuteronomy and Leviticus were stuff that they'd already heard, but it was all put together in one. But you were going to say something else. So where does the quote actually come from? That's a good question. Nobody knows that exactly. But the whore part comes from the fact that Tamar then dressed up like a prostitute. And the argument being that it was better that Judah slept with a prostitute than that Onan spilled his seed on the ground. And you say, well, yes, as it turns out, yes. I mean, it was better that he provided an heir. Pardon me? It's not precedent. It's not precedent, and man, this is so not the way I put this. You know, like, <laughs> but also, this idea that in, I mean, fairly early on in Catholic teaching, this became fairly early on. Um, actually, you remember in the, when we talked about this in the, in the history class, in a large part because of reacting to like the Gnostics who, who said like all physicality is bad, all physical material is sin. Relatively early on in the church there was a move to say all sex is a sin. Anything like that is inherently sinful, which is why Mary had to be a perpetual virgin, right? Because she was sinless, right? And if she was sinless she couldn't have ever had sex because sex is inherently sinful. So many bad theological viewpoints came out of this basic idea that sex is inherently naughty, which is a worldly concept, not a biblical concept. Um, it's just the world likes it naughty. But, but the world likes the idea that sex is sinful. They say it like that. But it's, but so the Catholic Church said, oh, sex is inherently bad. That's why Mary had to be a virgin because she's perpetually sinless. So as a perpetual virgin. But that's also... Masturbation is bad, and part of why we know masturbation is bad is clearly because of the sin of Onanism, right? Because sin, because Onan spilled a seed. That's the sin there, is the spilling of the semen on the ground. And you go, but that's not even remotely what the story is saying. The story is not saying that. The sinful part of masturbation isn't the spilling of semen. The sinful part of masturbation is that you're indulging sexual fantasizing rather than healthy marital relationship. Healthy marital sexuality, that's a good one. You can go to Hebrews 13 or 1 Corinthians 6 or any one of a number of places where you're like, you know, there's a context for this that you want to keep pure. That's what's cool. The spilling of the semen itself, not the big issue. But yes, nobody knows exactly where this little fun thing came in. We don't, we don't know exactly where that started, but it's been around for a good long time, and hopefully you can see now it does synopsize this story in a horrible sort of way. Because no, the Bible is not even remotely saying you should cast your seed in the belly of a, of a whore. That's you know, what First Corinthians is talking about. It's like, don't, don't join yourself to a prostitute. It's just, that's not a good idea. Okay, you might sit there and go, I never thought about it that way. That's ridiculous. I, I don't even know why we spent time on this. Because 1.2 billion Catholics live by this. 1.2 billion Catholics say that condoms are evil because Onan. 1.2 billion Catholics say the problem with masturbation is the spilling of semen. 
That's significant, wouldn't you say? And there's a whole lot of them that say, I really don't believe this, but since the Pope said it, there's nothing I can do about it. Actually, there's a huge move within Catholicism of saying, can we please change that rule? Which is an interesting concept. The grassroots, can we please change the unchangeable papal decree about the inherent sinfulness of spilling semen? Please. It's also a big deal to the billions of non-Christians in the world who thinks this is ridiculous. Amazingly stupid. There's an amazing number of, well, this is from Monty Python's Meaning of Life. There's a whole song and dance number about every sperm is sacred, which is why this guy has like a hundred children because, you know, birth control is horrible. And, and just utterly ripping to shreds the church over this, saying they're just so stupid. And do you realize how many children are starving around the world because contraception is inherently bad? Monty Python just wails on that, like a five-minute scene of, of this. Um, or go online and read any one of a number of, of comic strips or memes or whatever of people saying, the church says, you know what? Somebody spilled the seed in the ground, so God killed it. That's the God you have. Not a loving God. You say that God is loving and forgiving. You killed somebody for spilling a semen for crying out loud. That's not a God I want to follow. Did God kill Onan because... There's something inherently deadly about semen touching dirt. Including Mark Twain wrote a book on it, lectured on it frequently, about the science of onanism. And he used that as, as an example for how to just, un, just rip on organized religion, saying they don't even understand their own religious texts. They will tell you you are sinning. They will tell you you are burning in hell. They will give you... They will give you eternal consequence to something their books don't even say. So help me out here. Is this worth talking about? Kind of gives a rationale for the course. And then of stopping and saying, well, wait, what are the things that you go, well, I know that's what the Bible The Bible says millions of people around the country today, I guarantee you there are at least 472 people in the United States today that will say either well the bible says or my sunday school teacher taught me about stuff that isn't actually in, in scripture there's, there's thousands of people in the united states so i'm sure the 400 what did i say 472 427 427 i'm sure 427 of them will say that today and it's inherently dangerous please don't, don't walk away going oh so kevin said everything's fine just figure out why it's wrong. It's not wrong because of it. Yes or no? Is this biblical? Eat, drink, and be merry. What did you say, Sarah? Um, I'm trying to think. I think it is, but it's I can't take it completely out of, tip, not out of context. So I okay. It's in the Bible right now. Well, no, ish. Because the words, well, here. People could be quoting from Isaiah 22, though it drops off the context that makes it make any sense. Uh, Isaiah says, it shares from God, the Lord, Yahweh Almighty. What? You should have said it. Yahweh Almighty called you on that day to weep and wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But see, there's joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle, killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. Tomorrow we're having fun. Instead of repenting like you're supposed to be repenting in this day of judgment, people want to have one last bash. It's not even like they were saying, oh, nothing's going to happen. They're just saying, oh, nothing's going to happen today. So let's have some fun. It's kind of like the flip side. What, what's um, what's Mardi Gras? Big party, right? That's what that means. But what's uh, anybody remember what Fat Tuesday is? Well, yeah, because you eat, drink, marry, because now it's forty days. Uh, yeah, fasting or whatever before Easter. Right. It's it's Fat Tuesday comes right before. I think it's Ash Wednesday, right? So the whole idea is that you you have a big old party. 
because tomorrow you actually have to take this stuff seriously. So I have a huge party today. Again, I'm, I'm not saying that that is inherently evil, but that does kind of echo something that Isaiah is going, what? What the hell? What? Do you not get this at all? But it's a direct quote from Ecclesiastes, like, like Jenny was saying earlier. Ecclesiastes 8.15. Solomon says, I commanded pleasure, for, I, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in the, his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. I realize, yeah. Okay. Context here, he's like, I, I, I realize I, I've been double-checking everything. I've been going through everything. and I, It's kind of pointless. So you might as well just enjoy yourself. Except there's a context here. Solomon's not suggesting that we just party either. Not, not really, because if you remember, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is is almost Jobian in its please don't just take a verse out of, out of Ecclesiastes and run with it. Because there's a whole chunks of Job and whole chunks of Ecclesiastes that we're supposed to say, I don't think that's the way this works. In fact, that's, that's the whole argument that Ecclesiastes has. He's just got to finish saying, he's realized people don't get what they think they deserve in life. The righteous get what the wicked deserve. The wicked get what the righteous deserve. Nobody's getting what they, I think that they should deserve. And he's just about, after he says this, to conclude that even the wisest men can't figure any of that stuff out. So why not just enjoy what you got when you got it? It's like, I don't know. But even then, the whole point of the book is that Solomon's like, wait, I'm systematically going through everything I thought through. I thought I would do this, and that didn't work. I thought I would do this, and that didn't work. I tried this, and that didn't work. I tried this, and I realized that was empty. I tried this, and I realized that was pointless. Over and over again throughout Ecclesiastes, he's saying, I've tried all these different things, and I realize when it comes down to it, I have systematically ripped down everything that anybody could ever say is what life is all about. Life is all about partying. Nope, that's pointless because of this and this. Okay, it's about building things. Really? Because every building you build will eventually crumble. Okay, building dynasties. Really? Can you guarantee that your son is cool? Can you guarantee that your granddaughter is? Can you guarantee that your great-grandkids are? This will eventually fall apart. Oh, okay, it's writing great wisdom books. Yeah, that three people read. Anything that you want to say, this, I will invest myself in this, my life has meaning because of this, is ultimately pointless. What matters is why you do it. The thing you've accomplished, that will always crumble why you strove to accomplish it. That's the thing that lasts forever. That's the thing that lasts for eternity. And that why needs to be an obedient relationship to God. Fear God and follow his commandments for... This is the whole... I can't hear you. Duty of man. Okay. It's alright. Hopefully the rest of you can hear what I'm saying. At the end of Ecclesiastes, fear God, follow his commandments for this is... The whole duty of man. Exactly. It's why we're here. So he's not recommending even the just enjoy your life conclusion either, is he? He's like, no, I tried that. I said, this is the only thing that makes sense. And then I said, yep, no, that doesn't work either. And what's interesting is, and I am not the first person to think of this, what if Isaiah was referring to Solomon? What if he's like, you do realize Solomon said that was pointless years ago. And here you guys are going... Oh, well, let's eat. I mean, it's even in the Bible, for crying out loud. Let's just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. He's like, you do realize that didn't even make it past Ecclesiastes 8. I mean, Solomon said, well, I mean, since we don't know what's going to go on tomorrow, we might as well enjoy today. Oh, wait, uh, uh, that doesn't make sense. But the wisest guy in the world said that doesn't make sense. Why are you guys doing this? Because it's in the Bible. That's what you've thought. What? Go ahead. Okay. So, with either verse you point to, with the Isaiah or Ecclesiastes, both of these, the Bible's saying the exact opposite of what we mean when we go, eat, drink, and be merry. We say that as a suggestion. Let's go do that. Let's go have fun. And it doesn't even have to be, like, inappropriate fun. It's just, let's go have fun. What? In Ecclesiastes 3.13, though, he does say it as a suggestion. Says this is God's gift to man. Yes. Enjoyment. Yes. Is that in and of itself what we're designed for? So, I mean, so he's not saying that the opposite. All right. 
Well, I would argue in Ecclesiastes, no, okay, well, let's do it this way. In Ecclesiastes 3 and Ecclesiastes 8, in both of those immediate instances, he's not. By the time you get to the end of Ecclesiastes, he's saying, if that is the point that you're going for, you've missed the point. So I, I, he's not necessarily saying it is, it is a sin to do this, but I would say the, to, the sum total of Ecclesiastes is saying, all this stuff that I have made an argument for earlier in this book, no. So I think the, the, the point of Ecclesiastes is ultimately, I am not suggesting that you go and do this as a way of life. Though he's not necessarily saying it is inherently evil. Um, uh, building a kingdom, doing great works for God are not necessarily inherently evil. It's just, if that's what your point is, you've missed the point. And I would say, so in both Ecclesiastes and Isaiah, Isaiah more pointedly, but in Ecclesiastes and Isaiah, this particular phrase are used, is used within the context of saying, I'm not recommending that you go party. I'm not necessarily recommending this. I'm, I'm working through the, the wisdom of that in Ecclesiastes, and I'm flat out saying, I don't think that's particularly wise in Isaiah 22. What? Well, that goes on in chapter 9 to say, go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your verse. Right. So, he's not, so, okay, I, saying, I, okay, I'm not, so I'm just saying, he's not saying, yeah, so. Okay, I'm going to say this again. If we take chunks of Ecclesiastes and, and look at this verse or that verse, there is no God. The Bible specifically says there is no God. Within the context of saying the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I would say the larger argument of Ecclesiastes is even the stuff that I said as part of my arguments within Ecclesiastes is not the conclusion I'm trying to get to. Um, but let's do it this way. For those of you that say, no, there's a person in Ecclesiastes where he specifically says this. I'm not even going to dispute that anymore. Great. Hold on to that. But it doesn't mean we should be reveling. Now, that's not the point of the verse. Because I have to at least say, at the end of Ecclesiastes, it's the why you do this that's crucial. And I know it has nothing to do with Christmas. Okay? I know it. It's just that you go on, 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 on Google, and almost every image, almost every context, it's about Christmas. Why? Because it says Mary. And we're Americans. The only time we ever use the word Mary is when we're talking about Christmas. I jokingly tell people Happy Christmas, like, like uh, they do in England, and I tell people Merry Birthday. And people say, you're so weird. You can't say Merry Birthday. It's illegal. Merry is reserved for Christmas. Sorry. Well, tell you what, we, we've officially run out of time, uh, so I won't go to the next one. Yep, I won't go to the next one. Give me an example. Two days ago, I was in bed early, turned on the TV. There's a station, no, it was a church or what. Send in seed money of $1,000 to get your prayer answered. This is, uh, I don't have cable or anything. This is just in the, yeah. Well, the Bible clearly, the Bible clearly says that we need to, to invest seed money so that we can get things. That's why you give to the Lord, is so that you can receive, right? Isn't there... Isn't that in scriptural that you give to receive? It's nice that they tell you it's a thousand dollars. It is. That's actually very helpful. What were you going to say? Or who said something over? I said because we know about it. That's right. That's not why we give. You don't do that. All right. Tell you what. Let's let, let me end with at least a, a call to say context is important. If you prefer, I will move this to yes-ish. Um, that. But the idea of saying, are we saying things that are biblical, i.e. reflecting biblical truth? Are we saying things that we think are biblical, i.e. we thought they were actually in Scripture? Are, when we're talking to people and they cite Scripture, are they saying correctly? Are they dropping off things? When they say something like, everything works together for good, it's like, are we dropping off important elements? Are there things that, that we need to stop and say, even if Scripture says this, there's, there's, there's more to that. If you want to apply it this way then, um, even if you want to argue that Solomon is saying, no, nope, that sort of thing is good, 
You should enjoy the days that you have. You should do that. Isaiah is saying, apparently to everything there's a season, and this ain't the season for it. So you need to stop and think about, is there some wisdom to doing that at this point? Or do you just take that as, well, Solomon said it was okay, therefore it must be okay. Or do you, or do you say, well, but wait, do you understand what's actually going on around you at this moment? And is this really the right way to, to apply this? To be all Pauline, it may be permissible for you, but is it beneficial? And does it honor God? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. And I do pray that you help us to, to genuinely try to, to live by it. And by that I mean to know it and to try to live by it. I pray, Lord, help us to, to genuinely desire, and as much as we can, to have our lives reflect your genuine and accurate truth. In Jesus' name, amen.